Now, some of you may know, in 1538, John Calvin was expelled from his church from the town of Geneva. And there was a number of reasons for this, uh, theological reasons, other reasons as well. Three years later, he was asked to come back and to again pastor the church in Geneva. When he did so, he picked right up in his exposition of the book of Psalms as when he left. Now, I've been gone for three months, um, not quite as much as three years, and as far as I know, I wasn't kicked out. But we're going to pick right back up as well um, in the book of James. So you want to open your Bibles to James chapter 2. And uh, I don't claim to be anything like John Calvin, but I will pick up on where we left off. Uh, when I was with you last time, it was in the month of June, actually. And we're looking at the chapter, James chapter 2. And as you recall, the book of James, maybe you do since it's been a while, James, the theme of James is genuine faith on display. Genuine faith on display. That is what James speaks of. And he's not writing just this is what you need to believe, but this is what it should look like if you believe. And so it's very helpful to us. And in that, he gives 13 marks of what genuine faith looks like. This is genuine faith on display, these different ways. And we've covered some of these already um, over last year. One was genuine faith considers trials as joy. A true believer, someone who does have faith in Christ, will recognize that God's in control and that God is using trials for our growth and for his glory. And then we looked at how genuine faith receives the word. Genuine faith, a person with genuine faith will receive the word humbly. A person who loves the Lord will sit under God's word, wanting to listen, wanting to grow, not arguing, not fighting back. That took us through the end of chapter one. And then chapter two, as we start here, is James is saying genuine faith loves without favoritism. This is the third mark he looks at, that a true believer is not going to show partiality, not going to show favoritism. So with that, let's look at these first 13 verses. And uh, if you have your Bible, I hope you're open there. And then let's, let me read that for you. James 2.1, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. 
For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So we see in this passage, verses 1 to 13, that James starts right there in verse 1, speaking of favoritism and the sin of favoritism. Now, favoritism, depending on what translations you, translation you may hold before you, it may say personal favoritism, may say partiality, uh, or may say respect of persons. Uh, different translations. The literal Greek is to receive the face. And that very picturesque there is that you're looking on the outward, to receive the face. Uh, we lived in China for a number of years, as, as many of you know, and face is a common concept. And it's not talking about um, your literal face so much, but that, you know, you want people to think highly of you and how people view you, so you give face to people or you shame them, you're, you're taking away face. But here face, we see, is translated as personal favoritism or partiality. And it's very simply judging someone based on external characteristics, such as status or wealth, influence, popularity, or appearance. And so James speaks here in these first 13 verses of chapter 2 about this issue that was happening in the local church. Now, there's many ways that we can show partiality or favoritism. And that shows itself uh, in racism. It shows itself in how we um, treat uh, other nationalities, other cultures, how we treat maybe who are different than us, maybe disabled, anything like that. That's partiality. But the specific one that James focuses on here is favoritism towards the wealthy. All of those are sin. All of those types of favoritism are wrong. But James wants to focus on the wealthy. And as we see in this passage here, that any partiality, whether it's based on wealth or anything else, is abhorrent to God. God hates partiality. We may think it's a small thing. Like, okay, well, I'm, oh, I'm a little nicer to the guy because I... You know, I know he has money. I know he's popular. He's a, he's a big shot. He knows people. But that's not a big deal. Uh, I'm nice to everybody. I'm just nicer to this person. Well, Scripture says it is a big deal. And it is a big deal in large part because God is so different than that. God is not one to show partiality. Scripture makes that very clear. And there's a number of passages, but I just want to point to a few for you. Romans 2 speaks of this. Romans 2, verses 9 to 11. And here we're, as you know, in the book of Romans, Paul is laying out salvation. And in the first three chapters, focusing on the sinfulness of all men. In chapter 2, he writes, And there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. And the point is here, he's making, look, if a man is sinful, and all men are sinful, they will face God's judgment. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a non-Jew. And as you can tell, that, that runs the gamut. 
So what he's by Greek here, he's not speaking of the nation of Greece, but non-Jew is what he's speaking of. And he says it doesn't matter. God does not show partiality on race. Salvation and whether or not God accepts you as his child is not based on your race. We also see then in Ephesians 6, 9, another statement of God not showing partiality. In instructions given to both slaves and then masters in Ephesians 6, it reads, Masters, give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. And again, a clear statement of Scripture. There is no partiality with God. God is a God of justice, and he does not treat people better based on external appearance. And really, we think, how foolish would that be uh, to think of God judging on external appearance? He made everyone. He's sovereignly in control. So he chooses how much money anyone has, what anyone looks like, what nationality they are, and then he's going to judge them based on that? No, that's not who God is. God does not judge based on race, and then we see in this passage, too, he doesn't show partiality based on wealth or position of power. God doesn't merely look at the externals, and because that is true, we should not either. It's not becoming. Aren't we children of God? And as children of God, we should be like our Father. If God does not show partiality, does not show favoritism, it is not only foolish for us to do so, it is sinful. Now, God doesn't look on outward appearance. He does not judge on that. What does God judge on? Well, we're reminded in 1 Samuel 16, 7, God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It's God's, God looks at your heart, and it's your heart before him. Do you love him? Not how much money you have, not how well-known you are, what position of authority you might have, whether you're a king of a country, whether you're a president of a nation, whether you're a homeless person, whether you are even Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> God doesn't judge. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. Uh, God doesn't judge you based on those things. God looks at your heart. He does not judge by outward appearance. And so knowing this about God, it shouldn't surprise us then that we find in James 2 this instruction to us as well. And yet, although it makes so much sense, doesn't it? Of course we shouldn't be judging an outward appearance. And we know God doesn't. But we do it. We do it. And why do we do that? Why do we judge people on outward appearance? Well, pride, probably part of it. We want to think ourselves better than someone else. And so it, it comes out in that way. Uh, we, if we can look down on someone else, that means we're above them, right? So if we can look down. And, and then a lot of it is we, we adopt the world's thinking on on externals. The reality is the world around us focuses on externals. And that's not a surprise to us because they don't have spiritual life in Christ that they're going to do that. But we adopt the world's thinking so often. And so that's so much what we need to avoid. And we're going to be 
looking at that more. But this passage, I want to walk through this passage here. In James chapter 2, you have it in front of you. And he gives four reasons here that favoritism must never be present in the life of a follower of Christ. James gives us four reasons in these 13 verses why if we're a believer, if we're a child of God, we should never be accused of partiality. So we have looked at already a couple of these. In verse 1, we saw that favoritism is incompatible with faith. So we covered that last time, and we'll review that briefly. We also looked at, in verses 2 to 4, where we saw the illustration that James gives uh, that faith is immoral. Today, we're going to focus on the third one. Favoritism is irrational. And then next time, we're going to look how favoritism is irreconcilable with God's law. But I want to go back and review those first two points. It has been three months. And uh, make sure we remember what James has said in those first four verses. So verse one, we saw that favoritism is incompatible with faith. He writes, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. And as you recall, literally in, in the Greek, if we were to look at how the construction of that sentence is in the Greek, it's written in this way, do not with personal favoritism, hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious one. And so what's being talked about here, when James is talking about the faith, he's not talking about your level of belief. Um, do not hold your level of belief in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying the faith. And when he says the faith, he means the truth, the truth of the gospel. Do not hold the gospel, which is central uh, around the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's talking about the truth of the gospel. You cannot hold the gospel and at the same time have favoritism and look down on people for any reason, including due to wealth. And in the, in the Christian faith, in the faith, what truths do we find in the gospel? Well, we know, number one, God is holy and righteous and is no respecter of persons. I mean, that is central that God's holiness is what we must understand in the gospel. And if God was an, a God of injustice, then he would not be holy. So we, we know that the gospel depends on the fact that God is a God of justice. Secondly, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. Not those of some nationalities, not those poor people, not those rich people. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Christ died on behalf of any person who puts their trust in him. It is not only some who can come to faith in Christ, only some who get forgiven by trusting in him, but any person who comes to him. And then all believers are one in Christ. We were reminded of that this morning as well and commanded to love one another and to be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit, the bond of peace, no matter their social status, nationality, or income level. And again, what a great message this morning reminding us, look, the body of Christ is so beautiful because it takes people from all different backgrounds, all different nationalities, and we worship together. We serve one another because we're all serving one God. I tell you, it's a, it's a unique privilege for me to be able to travel uh, to visit other churches, visit our missionaries as I do. Um, and I'm sure many of you have had that opportunity at different times, but I get to be in churches, whether it's in Colombia 
or Egypt or Armenia or Africa and be around other believers who love God. And there is a common bond that you have with other believers. And if you've been to a church in another country or another national, you've experienced this. Suddenly it's like, I feel close to you, even though you're so different in every way. And a lot of times I don't even speak the same language as the people I'm with. And yet through translation, they just express their love for God, their desire to obey him. And there's a commonality that we have because of what Christ has done. Because of fellowship with Christ, we have fellowship with one another. And that is part and parcel to the gospel. You can't have the gospel and have partiality and have these judgments made on what a person looks like or who they are. So it's incompatible with the faith is what James makes clear then in in verse 1. That it is impossible to hold the faith correctly and judge others based on external reasons. Well, secondly, we saw last time that favoritism is also immoral. And he gives this example of the man coming in with a gold ring and saying, uh, and the people say, wow, (laughs) I'm going to give him a good seat. Let me give him the the best seat here. That's why we sat Richard in front here, because so (laughs) well-dressed. No. And then to the poor man, say, oh, you, you, you sit in the bag, you sit in a poor place. Now, I think in our modern day and in, in, in here, I don't think that exact scenario would play out. At least, I wouldn't think so. Um, but that is a scenario that was happening in the early church. And, uh, and James points that out. But although maybe that exact scenario we wouldn't necessarily do, we may show some preference to someone who has money, some kind of preference, some kind of honor to them, and that is equally as wrong. Um, And the type of favoritism, again, that James wants to focus on is the wealth. And we've already seen in the book of James, in chapter 1, if you recall, verses 9 to 11, he talks about the rich and the poor who were in the church. And it was a serious issue. He addressed it in chapter 1 about the rich and the poor, and then he's talking about it here in chapter 2. Again, we'll see it in chapter 5. So three times in this short epistle, we see references to how the rich and the poor get along with one another. This was clearly an issue in those early churches to whom James was writing. And the reality is that the majority of church members at that time were very poor. That was most common as you had poor people in the church. They were laborers in the fields. And their poverty was only exacerbated by wealthy landowners um, who threw them off their land often. And then when they became believers, well, then wealthy Jewish landowners would likely even cast more dispersion upon them, make life more difficult for them. So poverty was a reality in the early church. Many were thrown out of their homes, fired from their jobs. This was a common situation, and it's in that scenario where someone wealthy comes in, in this example. And in doing so, you'd think, well, how do people react? Well, the problem was that some people were acting like this. We're saying, okay, well, here's a chance to gain favor with the rich man. Maybe this will help me. Maybe if, you know, he sees me getting his seat, this will will help my case out because I'm poor. And so there was favoritism shown 
to the wealthy man. Now, I think as we read a passage like this, it's, it's easy for us to want to jump to, oh, those wealthy people, they shouldn't be wearing a gold ring and dressed in these fine clothes. Uh, this is a passage talking how bad it is to be wealthy. Well, it's not. Look at the, look at the passage here. Is there any criticisms toward the wealthy man? Now, maybe he could have been wiser about not dressing ostentatiously into, a, into an assembly. But really, it's not the rich man that's being critiqued here. It is those who are showing him favoritism. It's those who are showing partiality to them. So here's the reality. Whether you are poor or rich, we could fall into this sin. It doesn't matter what status we are. We all can be sinful in this way and show partiality to those who have money. And it's a long, this verses two to four is just one long rhetorical question. And how does he end this rhetorical question in verse four there? Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? They have become judges. They have made these distinctions and with evil thoughts in their heart. It is immoral what they're doing. It is not a small thing. It is immoral. They are judges with evil motives. And you see the irony in this passage as well. What is the sin that they're doing? It's judging an outward appearance. But what does then God see? And what, it, what does God know about them? That they have evil motives. God knows the motives. God knows the hearts. And although God does judge on the motives and on the hearts, we can still be so unlike God and make those distinctions on outward appearance. Knowing that God is aware of our thoughts, it's not just showing them the good seat or doing something nice. It's your very thoughts. If in the silence of your own thinking, you think condescendingly about someone, like, wow, that person didn't uh, really want to come to church nice today. Or like, wow, I wonder what they're doing here. Um, God sees that. You can be convicted or should be convicted by this truth if it's only in your thoughts. Because that's what God sees. He's aware if we become judges with evil motives. It is immoral to do so. It is immoral. It is lacking of the virtue that God calls us to. So we've seen then that uh, favoritism is incompatible with the faith. It's also immoral in the eyes of God as well. Well, third, so now that's review. Let's look at the third one now. Favoritism is irrational, starting in verse 5. So James continues his series of rhetorical questions. As I mentioned, two to four is just one long uh, rhetorical question, and now he has a bunch more in verses 5 to 7, with one pointed statement in the middle of it. And we'll get to that in a minute. But he starts off, my beloved brethren, and here James is intensifying his appeal to them. He has said, my brethren, many times. Usually when James does this, he's starting a new section. This is a new topic. But we can see pretty clearly here, this is not a new topic. He's starting after verse 4. Occasionally he'll do this to intensify what he's saying. So he gave that illustration of the man walking in. 
And now he's making a strong appeal to them how irrational favoritism is. And he'll give us two reasons why favoritism is so irrational. And the first is this. It contradicts God's favor on the poor. To show favoritism towards the wealthy is irrational because what is God? How does God feel about the poor? And he writes, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. So don't miss the irony. Again, did not God choose the poor to be rich? Well, that seems like a contradiction in terms, doesn't it? He chose the poor to be rich. Well, he didn't do a good job choosing then because if they're still poor, they're not rich. Well, it's a rich in faith. It's not rich in an earthly sense. He says here, the poor of this world. And that's best understood, poor in the eyes of this world. Poor how people see this person. Now, God sees them very differently. God sees that person as rich, rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. So as we look at this verse, it can, we can jump to some wrong conclusions if we're not careful. And I want to just caution us. When it says, did not God choose the poor of the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? We might say, oh, well then, then what does that mean? God only choose the poor people. But it's not saying only poor people are chosen by God. We got to be careful not to draw that conclusion. It is not, but God only chose the poor people of this world, but God chose the poor people of this world. Scripture records some people who are wealthy. In fact, Abraham. We know in Genesis 13.2, it says how wealthy Abraham was. He was a wealthy man. We also see in Job 1.3, Job was a very wealthy man as well. Now, were they rich in faith? Well, Scripture is very clear how rich in faith they were, right? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And Job's faith shone through all he went through. In fact, in the book of James itself, James mentions both Abraham and Job as examples to follow after. So James praises these two men. If, if it were only the poor that were rich in faith, then, then we should never say good things about Abraham or Job because they were wealthy men. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say only the poor of this world that God has chosen. It also doesn't say all the poor are chosen by God to salvation. It doesn't say every single poor person will be rich in faith. There are many poor individuals who are not saved. And unless a person comes humbly before God and is poor in spirit and repents of their sin and looks to Christ's righteousness alone, they will not be saved. It is not the act of being poor that makes you rich in faith. If that were the case, then giving to the poor would be doing them a great disservice, wouldn't it? If I'm if someone's more righteous by being poor, then I better not give to a poor person because they're going to lose some of the righteousness. Well, that's foolishness, right? Of course, that's, that's not what Scripture says. It does not say that all poor are rich or that poor gives you uh, that right standing before God. It also doesn't say there's any special merit in being poor. It's not more virtuous to be poor. That is not what this is saying. The only true merit... Before God, what is accomplished by Christ's righteousness and given to us by God's grace? 
So it's not saying these things, only poor people are chosen by God, or all the poor are chosen by God, or there's any special merit in it. What, it, what is it saying then? It is saying that God chooses poor people's salvation and to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, that the poor are not excluded or even treated as inferior to the earthly wealthy in any way. There is no thought, no inkling in God's perfect mind that, well, I'm going to take more rich than poor, that rich are better. Poor are equally welcomed, equally loved by God. It does not matter your wealth before the Lord. Again and again in scripture, we see how God has special love and special concern for the poor. And we could look at dozens and dozens of verses. Um, I want to mention just a few, just to remind us. Deuteronomy 15, 11, in the law, we read, For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore, I command you, saying, You shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. God made special provision. He wanted the poor to be cared for because he saw their need. In the Psalms, we read this as well. For he, the Lord, stands at the right hand of the needy to save him from those who judge his soul. God has a special love for the needy. In Isaiah 25, 4, the prophet writes about the Lord, you have been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress. Well, that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? In the New Testament as well, caring for the poor was important to the Lord. In Galatians 2.10, Paul writes, He only asks us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And as I said, there's many times this is mentioned in Scripture, how God has a love for the poor. He doesn't treat them less. If anything, he sees their need and wants to reach out to them. And care for them. And it's not just the poor, it's the needy, the widow, the orphan, the outcast. Anyone who is seen less by this world, God has a love for them. Now, that doesn't mean that they get special merit by God either. It doesn't mean that they get a pass on any sins that they do. But there's a reality that, generally speaking, it is more often the poor or the needy, those who have not that come to faith in Christ. It is more often not the most powerful in our society, but the weakest in our society that come to faith in Christ. And why is that? Why does it seem that the, we see so frequently the needy turn to Christ and not the powerful of this world? Well, I think we know that the needy are less likely to put their trust in money or power and more quickly recognize they need a savior. They can become poor in spirit because, boy, they don't have anything else to trust in. And so it's not, again, that their poverty in and of itself makes them accepted to God, but they are less likely to trust in themselves. And we see in Mark 10, 25, Jesus made the statement, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, that verse comes right on the heels of Jesus talking to the rich young ruler. And in speaking to the rich young ruler, exposing his heart, the last thing Jesus says is, go sell all, your ha all you have and give that to the poor and follow me. And the rich young ruler walked away because he owned much land. That is exactly the issue. What happens to those who are wealthy is 
give everything to follow Christ, be willing to, to give if that's what God calls me to. Well, I don't want to follow Christ that much. I'll add Christianity in my life, but, you know, if I can hold on to this, uh, that's what is most important to me. So this is the reason, then, that we see so many who are wealthy don't come to Christ because they mask their spiritual poverty with their possessions, with, with the popularity that they have, with these things. And we see, then, that most people who come to Christ, generally speaking, again, there are those, there are the exceptions in Scripture, the Abrahams, the Jobs, the others, but they're the exceptions. This is the reality. 1 Corinthians 1 tells us God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And the base things of the world, the spies God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. And these, the, this is us. You know, and we need to make sure we see ourselves that way. Now, if we have money, it doesn't mean we can't be poor in spirit. And frankly, I mean, where, where are we? We're in the United States of America. We're in Los Angeles. We're all, if we compare ourselves with the rest of the world, we are rich. We are. We got to be so careful that we don't hold on to those riches or think highly of those more than we ought, that we fight to be poor in spirit because we are in danger of this more than most because how wealthy we are. So we need to be careful and recognize that, look, wealth is, earthly wealth is, is really trivial compared to eternal, compared to spiritual realities. It's, it's more of a fight for us to do that. It's not like, oh, feel sorry for us, we have money. But the reality is that we need to make sure we keep our thinking right regarding the wealth and the poor uh, situation. We need to see ourselves as the foolish and the weak things of this world. We are reminded in this passage that did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. Rich in faith. There is a richness to faith. There is a wealth in knowing the Lord. Uh, You have a right relationship with Christ. You have forgiveness of sins. You know how, how God made the world. You know the end that God's bringing the world to. You have a richness of faith because God has spelled out truth in his word. Whether you're poor or not in this world, you can be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who loved him. Kingdom, the kingdom of God waits those who know the Lord. And a kingdom much better than any mansion on this earth. No utility bills or maintenance or taxes. Uh, And in California, there's a lot of taxes. But our heavenly kingdom has none of that. And we can be heirs of the kingdom even if you're poor in this world. And so we need to see the right relationship um, that we have towards earthly wealth. It is not the most important thing in our life. So to... To show favoritism to the wealthy, how irrational is it to do so um, when it is so different from how God sees things? And really, it's, it's the riches in faith that is so important. Now, what I, what I 
think is also interesting in this verse, and this is a, a little bit of a side note, but a theological truth that James puts in here that we don't want to miss. It talks about God choosing the poor of the world. And we saw earlier about God's choosing that he caused us uh, to be born again. Earlier in chapter one, that God's causing to salvation. Well, here we see God choosing. And so here again, we see election. And we may think, oh, well, God chooses. I thought we have to love God if we're saved. I thought that's how it goes. Well, can God choose someone and they never love God? No. If God chooses, they'll end up loving him. And that's what this verse shows. Did not God choose the poor to be rich in faith? That person will have faith if God chooses him, and they will love God. And so we see here that although some will want to try to make a dichotomy between seeking after God and loving him and having faith with God's choosing, there is no separation. There's no dichotomy here. It's it's one and the same. God will change someone to have faith and have love for God if, uh, if he elects them to do so. But we see, again, we, we should not, it's irrational to have favoritism because it contradicts God's favor on the poor. But secondly, in verses 5 to 7, it's also irrational to have favoritism because it contradicts the reader's own experience their own experience of oppression as well. He writes, is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? James says, you're showing favoritism to this wealthy guy in your group? How stupid are you? Look at what they're doing to you. And he mentions three things here. Is it not the rich who, one, oppress you? They were abusing the poor people in various ways, including, number two, personally dragging, dragging you into court. And we know historically that the, the rich were exploiting the poor through the legal system, taking away their land or ex, uh, charging excessive interest rates. In the first century Middle East, this small number of wealthy landowners and merchants would control things. And they would do whatever they wanted because they had the power and they had the money also to have the judges in their pockets as well. So they would be in control of everything. And we see there that they even dragged them into court because they knew I can get the judge to do whatever I want him to do. They had the money to make that happen. And James says, you're showing favoritism to people who are doing that to you? What are you doing? That's irrational. And then he adds a third thing here. Look at this next one. Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you've been called? Now, what is the fair name by which they've been called? It's Christian. It's, it's follower of Christ. Now, they may not have used the word Christian, but a follower of Jesus. That they were followers they would often call it the way. But they were known as Jesus followers. And they're blaspheming. And these rich people are blaspheming. How does that make sense? you guys, that you are showing favoritism to them. They're bringing dishonor upon the name of Christ. And to honor a wealthy person to one who dishonors Christ, that's the height of irrationality. Why would you do that? Honor someone who dishonors your Lord. And as we read this, we think, what were these, what were these people thinking? What were these people in the church thinking of honoring these people who blasphemed Christ and said these things? Well, I wonder what would happen. 
if uh, A-list celebrity comes in here to commissioned? You know, someone who's been in all the big movies. Ah, would we all fawn? Oh, there he is. There she is. You know, there's that movie star. There's that rock star, whatever it is. There's that celebrity. Would we do that? What do, what do movies usually have in it? A lot of blasphemy of Christ. And you, we might quickly overlook that because they're a celebrity. How cool is that? How irrational is that? Now, if you're like me in, in, in L.A., you've probably had a few celebrity sightings now and then. And, uh, and I, I get it when you see someone famous. It's like, oh, look at that. Look at that. <laughs> You know, and to recognize, we recognize people. Like, oh, that's interesting. But are we going to fawn over that? Do we, do we make much of that? Do we speak highly of someone who blasphemes the name of Christ? It's irrational. Now, we don't hate them. Nowhere in this passage are we supposed to treat rich people less or look down on them. It's not saying start hating rich people or start hating celebrities. No, it's not saying that. But don't treat them better. Don't treat anyone better because of external appearances. That's abhorrent to God. That is not what he does. Um, he looks at the heart, not at outward appearance. So we see here, James has said it's, it's inconsistent with our Christian faith to show favoritism. It, it's immoral to have these evil thoughts and these motives in our hearts towards them. And it's certainly irrational as well. It's irrational for... Clearly, God's love for the poor and irrational because of what you've seen in your own life. Well, one of the, um, uh, just different points there. One of the um, things that I think that lies behind a lot of this is that we have the wrong view so many times of wealth, of money. Um, and I, there's a lot of different ways we need to reorient our thinking toward a biblical perspective on wealth. Because we so quickly, just as the readers did in James, adopt what the rest of the world around them does. We so easily get sucked in to what the world does. So I wanted to just mention five different truths that we, should, we must hold fast to have a right perspective on wealth. Five different truths that we need to keep reminding ourselves of. These aren't things you're going, wow, I never heard that before. But you know what? We don't flush it out. We don't live out these principles. So we need to continue to rehearse these principles. And the first is this. God owns everything. We're just stewards of what God has. And there's a lot of verses we could look to. I'll mention a few. Job 41, 11. <clears throat> the Lord says, who's given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and all those who dwell in it. And then this command in Deuteronomy, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. <clears throat> God owns all things, everything. And if he gives us some wealth, well, we have some control over it for sure. The uh, Bible is not saying we should all be communists. Personal property is a real thing. But we may own personal property, but ultimately, who's the, who's the owner of that? It's the Lord. And we're just stewards of God's property. We're stewards of his money. We have to view 
<clears throat> all money that way, our own finances that way. What would God have me do with the money he's given me? It's not, you know, it's my money and how much will I give to the Lord? It's all God's money. How does he want me to use it? I mean, certainly we know we need to take care of our families. Certainly we know we need to buy food to eat. We need a house uh, or, or something over our head. We know we need to do those things. But we got to remember, are we doing what the Lord would have me do, stewarding that money wisely? Am I also seeing that money as opportunities? Opportunities to bless those who are needy, who are going through a rough time. To bless those who are seeking to plant churches in other countries. What, how do, do I see everything I have as owned by the Lord and I'm just handling it temporarily for him and I'm going to answer to him one day. I'm going to stand before him. He's going to say, what did, what did you do? We know the parables of the talents, the one talent, two talents, and so forth. There's a reckoning that's going to be coming. What did you do with the funds they give you? And then in a real, very real sense, we need to make sure we're ready to answer that question as well. What did I do? And again, in this room, myself included, we have much more than anybody in the world on average. What are we doing with the stewardship that God's given us? He's given us the 10 talents in a sense. We need to use it for the Lord. So that's the first perspective on wealth we must always maintain. The second is earthly wealth can be ruined stolen, or disappear. And again, this is what we know, but do we live that way? And of course, where Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. In Proverbs, we're reminded of this truth. Do not weary yourself out to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies towards the heavens. How quickly everything will go away. And this truth of the temporary nature of wealth uh, is something we can never forget. I mean, we know things like stock market crashing, a fire burns down your home, someone hacking into your bank account uh, online, draining it. Who knows what can happen to that? Earthly wealth will not last. Do we live that way? I know it. Do I live that way? So that's an important truth that we must always remember. And this is, stands in such stark contrast to our heavenly reward, to our inheritance of a kingdom. In 1 Peter 1, it says we have an inheritance that is imperishable, incorruptible, and will not fade away. That's the inheritance we have in heaven. And as Peter gives that description there in 1 Peter 1 of our heavenly inheritance, he talks in the negative, incorruptible, imperishable, will not fade away. And he almost has to speak in the negative because it's so unlike anything we know in this world. Everything in this world is perishable, is corruptible, and does fade away. But our, earthly, our heavenly inheritance is not that way. And if it's all going to go away, then why do we hold so tightly to it now? So that's the second. Third principle, you will leave your wealth behind. You'll leave it behind. Psalm 49, 
16, 17, do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased, for when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not descend after him. Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. And in 1 Timothy 6, 7, we have brought nothing into the world we can take. We cannot take anything out of it either. That is a reality. The Statements often made, you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You can't take your possessions. It's over. And this reality really hit home for me when my dad passed away in 2010. And, you know, my dad didn't have lots of stuff, but he had a lot of stuff in his garage. <laughs> lots of tools, lots of spare parts to anything. My dad could fix anything uh, amazingly. Well, um, I can't. Uh, I did not inherit that skill. I did not listen closely enough uh, as he was wanting to show me how to fix anything. And uh, so it was cleaning out the garage uh, of all these spare parts. And there's so many things. I had no idea what this was. And just the reality of, you know what? There comes a time when you don't take it with you. you. You leave it behind. And I just think of one of my stuff. This stuff that I think is, is precious, it's just going to be left behind. And we need to remember that when we um, hold our possessions so dearly. It does not have eternal value. There are things that have eternal value. There are people around you. That person sitting next to you and in front of you and behind you, they are immortal. Not in this earthly body, but immortal souls. Are you investing more time in stuff that's going to go away in maybe, you know, 40, 50 years, or in my case, maybe a lot sooner due to my age? Um, Stuff that's going to go away, or do you invest in what's eternal, on seeing people come to Christ, on loving other people? Uh, Your wealth you will leave behind. Fourth, money will not bring you happiness if you spend it on yourself. And... If you think, you know, hey, if I just have enough money, if I have enough possessions, then I'll be happy. Now, what's tricky about this is it brings temporary happiness. It does. I mean, let's be honest. Temporarily, yeah, you know, buying that spicy chicken burrito at Del Taco, it brings a temporary happiness. (laughs) Uh, It's good. But ultimately... It's not lasting happiness. That burrito's, it comes and it goes. (laughs) I'll leave that there. (laughs) That went a little sideways on me. Um, But look uh, look at Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. He was seeking anything to find fulfillment, to find happiness in this life. And one of them was in wealth and in things. And... Uh, chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood beside me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. And there was no profit under the sun. Ultimately, it wasn't bringing lasting happiness. 
it wasn't bringing something that would ultimately make him happy. In Proverbs 15, 16, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. Um, if you have great treasure, I've known there's a lot of very wealthy people. And you, you, I mean, you can read about celebrities or rich, famous people and their lives are a disaster. And they're not happy because money doesn't ultimately bring you happiness. A famous quote by Rockefeller was, I've made many millions, but they've brought me no happiness. That you can have the money of Rockefeller and you're still not really happy. There's a short-lived, you get a new car, but eventually that new car is not new anymore. You get the latest iPhone. Yeah, I'm happy. I got the latest uh, 15. Well, you know what? In a couple years, eh, it's, it's old now. We think it brings us happiness, but it's only temporary and it does not last. Now, what I say, put there, it won't bring you happiness if you spend it on yourself. But I tell you what, when you use your money to bless someone else, then you have a joy and it does profit you. In fact, in Philippians 4.17, the Philippian church gave what they had. They wanted to support Paul. They, they gave him money to help him in his ministry. And Paul writes in Philippians how thankful he is for the money that they gave to support the ministry. But what does he say in 4.17? Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek the profit which increases to your account. By them giving money to someone in need, in this case him and his ministry, it profited them. How often do you give away money and it, and it profits you? That's not usually how that, that works in economics. But then spiritually, that's how it works. So you can have happiness and you can have true profit if you use your money for spiritual things, things that honor the Lord. Well, fifth and finally, we need to remember earthly wealth is infinitely less valuable than heavenly treasures. Earthly wealth is infinitely less valuable than heavenly treasures. We already saw in James 1 this truth, but the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position and the rich man to glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass, he will pass away. But the man of humble circumstances can have a high position because of rich, rich in faith, as we saw in chapter 2 here. Rich in faith and heir of the kingdom. Do we... Do we see our spiritual wealth? Do we see our riches in Christ as so much more valuable than anything on this earth? And again, Revelation 2, 9, writing to the church there, the Lord says, I know your tribulation, your poverty, but you are rich. What a contrast. I know your, your poverty. You're rich. You're rich because of your spiritual wealth. And we need to reorient our perspective. We need to make sure we're not listening to what the world says, to how the world pushes having wealth, having things, having even positions of power or authority. We need to say, what is important spiritually? Think of our spiritual riches, forgiven of sin, freed from the power of sin. We have the ability the opportunity and the privilege to talk to God as a father anytime we want to. That's, that's big. And we have a certain hope as well. Do we see that it's so important? Or are we looking at these external outward things?
And as we, if we keep these principles in mind, the favoritism that's talked about here towards the wealthy is going gonna, is gonna to fade in the background because we see people, we'll look at people more as God sees them. Here is a soul that God loves that I want to love too, no matter what they, how they are dressed, how much money, what nationality or whatever. I want to see them as God sees them beyond the outward appearance, beyond the physical to say, hey, how can I demonstrate Christ's love to this person? Maybe they need encouragement. I'm sure there's people in this room that need encouragement today. As you know people and have those relationships, there's going to be people that need exhortation, that you need to say, hey, brother, let's get back on the right path, honoring God. Do we care about one another and their souls or are we focused on the external? Let's just continue to keep these truths in our mind. And I think it will, it'll change uh, for sure the way we deal with one another as well. All right, let me pray for us today. Lord, your word is so rich and it is so contrary to this world. Lord, it, it lays out the fact that the earthly wealth, the earthly treasures are so inconsequential compared to the spiritual riches we have in Christ. Yet so easily we are deceived that we can fall into the pattern of this world, God. But we pray that you would help us to remember these truths from your word, that we would not see earthly wealth as the most important thing, and in fact, very secondary, and that we would love Others, as you have loved us, as you love each person, Lord. God, we thank you most so much for your love for us. Undeserved, not because of anything we are or have done, Lord, but because of Christ. And we praise you and thank you for your grace in our lives. May we go and do likewise. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.